Now, with a view to the help of God, let's turn again to Amos and uh, chapter 7. And I want uh, this morning and tonight to consider uh, the whole uh, chapter. And um, particularly this morning, let's uh, focus on Amos' intercession on behalf of Israel. And uh, you'll find our text in verse 2, in the second part of verse 2, where Amos prays, O Lord God, forgive, I pray, O that Jacob may stand, for he is small. And again, you have the same prayer repeated in verse 5, where Amos says again, O Lord God, cease this time, not forgive, but cease, I pray, O that Jacob may stand, for he is small. Now, Amos was a prophet from the southern kingdom of Judah, and uh, God called him, as he describes himself, he was looking after sheep and tending trees. God called him to be a prophet, and he sent him to the northern kingdom of Israel. So he was a man from the south, but sent to the north. And of all places in Israel, he was sent to Bethel, which is the hardest place of all, I would think, to bring the word of God. If Samaria was the political capital of Israel, then Bethel we could describe as the religious capital of Israel. And uh, you found the headquarters there of the false worship of the true God. And uh, by this time, it it was being corrupted by various kinds of idolatry, but it's always important to remember that the doorway into that idolatry was the actual corruption of the worship of the true God. When Jeroboam uh, split away from the house of David and they established the northern kingdom of Israel, he set up an alternative system of worship. It was still of course, designed to be the worship of the true God, but he made it more uh, carnal, sensual. He appointed a new priesthood and uh, he used calves to represent God, something that Israel had done in her past. And um, Bethel degenerated, Israel degenerated. And in fact, at this point, there is little more than 60 years to go before the northern kingdom of Israel is not just taken into captivity, but actually dispersed, a dispersal from which uh, they have still not returned. So Bethel is the headquarters, you could say, of the compromised worship of the true God. And that's where Amos is sent. Now, from this chapter 7 through to the end of the prophecy, chapter 9, we have a series of five successive visions, uh, which effectively close the book. Now, these visions close with a brief glimpse of a very bright glory to come in the future. And this bright glory is both for Israel and for the world. And uh, if you just turn forward to chapter 9, and at verse 11, just these last five verses, 
you have that glimpse of the future. On a coming day when God will raise up David's tabernacle again, which has fallen down and repair its damages. I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. And uh, the glory that attends this action shall affect the whole earth. But it has a special reference uh, to these people who are going to be scattered in captivity. In verse 15, the last verse of the prophecy, I will plant them in their land, and no longer shall they be pulled up from the land I have given them says the Lord, your God. And as I've said so often recently, we see these things in process. Uh, The people of God are returning, the ancient people of God, but they have yet to be engrafted into uh, their own olive tree uh, by faith. They have still not recognized their God or their Messiah. So the prophecy ends with that bright vision of the future. But that can't disguise that the actual burden of these successive visions is is a burden of judgment that is coming upon Israel. It's a judgment that the prophet describes as being imminent and uh, catastrophic. Uh, Although it's 60 years away, it's still imminent. I mean, time is very different in the sight of God than it is Uh, in our sight. And even as we get older, um, of course, time seems different too. If if I was to say to you that a severe judgment was to come imminently in this nation, that would fit in with 60 years' time. That is still imminent in the grand scheme of things. But worse than that, it was to be catastrophic. As I mentioned earlier, the, the final affliction God was going to bring on Israel was a captivity from which, as I said, they still staggeringly have not returned uh, nearly now 3,000 years ago. Now, because the nature of Amos's message is one of judgment, it obviously brings him into conflict with the priests of the establishment in Israel. And um, obviously one of the leading priests there is a man called Amaziah, and he comes before us in chapter 10 of this, uh, sorry, in verse 10 of this chapter. And uh, as I mentioned before the reading, from verse 10 uh, to the end of chapter 7, you have you have a kind of interlude. The, the five visions are broken up by this encounter between Amaziah and Amos. And it's a very illuminating and instructive encounter. And really, it's, I suppose it's what I want to look at with you today, uh, looking especially in the morning at Amos and in the evening at Amaziah, the priest who lived in Bethel. And I think just to highlight the difference between the two, <clears throat> we could describe Amaziah as a professional priest of Jehovah. He's highly compromised, <clears throat> but he is a professional priest of Jehovah. On the other hand, Amos is a divinely called prophet. And far from being hopelessly compromised, he is thoroughly faithful to God. And uh, with God's help, I want to look at this encounter between the two of them and what it reveals about the two men and their motives and their lives and so on. And what we ourselves can learn from it, 
both by way of warning and by way of encouragement. I mean, we get the warning, obviously, from Amaziah, who he is and what he's become. But we get the encouragement, too, from Amos, uh, who he is and what God made him. So let's begin, then, this morning with the prophet. And uh, to understand the encounter between himself and Amaziah, we have to, first of all, understand the message that Amos was given to proclaim. Now, we read there in verse 7, three successive messages of judgment. And let's just look at them very briefly. The first one involved, and this is not new to us, it involved a swarm of locusts. He saw the Lord forming a locust swarm at the beginning of the late crop. Chapter 7. And verse 1. Um, now, this reminds us, I mean, the, the locust that we were looking at over recent weeks in the prophecy of Joel uh, involved a, a plague, four successive waves, remember, upon Judah. But this is a, a locust plague sent from God as a chastisement upon Israel in the north. Amos, interest, interestingly, sees the Lord forming the locust swarm. Um, it's, um, it's, a, it's an interesting way of putting it because he doesn't just see the locust swarm, but the Lord forming it. A reminder to us that, that God prepares everything for his own purposes. And he uses the world of nature <clears throat> sometimes to bless us and sometimes to curse us. The psalmist reminds us of the fire, hail, the clouds, and uh, the snow being in his command, and he uses them as he wishes. And the same is true of the world of nature entirely. Here he is forming this locust swarm for the purpose of chastising Israel. And the prophet sees the swarm arriving at the worst possible time. He says in verse 1 that he formed locust swarms at the beginning of the late crop. Indeed, it was the late crop after the king's mowings. Now, the, the first crop uh, went to the king, and it seems a lot uh, for the king to claim and, uh, and his administration. That's exactly what Samuel warned them about when they first of all wanted a king. He said the, the king would eventually live for himself and for his own government. There will be huge taxation and a huge administration, You'll take the best of your sons for his army and your daughters for his cooks and so on. And in fact, that was the reason why Israel separated from Judah in the first place. It had nothing to do with religion. As such, it was to do with the government of Rehoboam and indeed Solomon's latter day government becoming too big. And uh, Israel seceded in the north. And uh, it, it reminds us that people very often become what they're trying to avoid being. And um, sometimes nations become what they try to avoid being. It's one of the characteristics of um, communist forms of government, that they end up being the very thing that they try to avoid being. Well, here Israel is the same thing. Now, the first mowings went to the king. The second crop was for the people. And if the second crop... Uh, is lost, then, of course, the result is famine. 
And here again, in verse 2, we see that when the locusts had finished in the north, in Israel, when they had finished eating the grass of the land, that I said, O Lord, forgive, I pray. So they've devoured everything. Here again, the word grass, as is so often the case in the Bible, doesn't mean grass as we know it. It means uh, foliage, herbs, vegetation. They strip the land. That's the first vision. The second vision is one of a destructive fire in verse 4, which the Lord calls for. He calls for conflict by fire. It's an interesting way of putting it. It's as though the people have been provoking God, and so God ups the ante, as it were. The Lord called for conflict by fire, and this fire is so unusual that it doesn't just devour the territory, but it consumes the deep. It, It licks up the water. Now, I think this is a a reference, really, not so much to fire, literally, but to the severe drought which devastates land in the way in which a fire does. Um, The land looks burnt, and uh, the water has been consumed. So, like locusts, fire was often, or drought was often, a way in which God afflicted judgment upon his people. So, I think this is a reference to a drought that has just dried out the land. Now, these two visitations are from God. And like like what we saw in connection with Joel and Judah, these particular afflictions, locusts and drought, have affected the economy and the comforts of the people. Now, this is in the reign of King Jeroboam II. And perhaps the outstanding thing about that particular reign is that it was the only time when Israel really prospered as a nation. I don't mean spiritually, because the sad fact is that Israel never prospered spiritually as a nation. Once it had divided away from Judah, you have a succession of evil kings, some of them competent, some of them highly incompetent. And while there were good people, obviously, in Israel and good prophets, the nation was on a steady path of spiritual decline. And there's no punctuation uh, with revival or anything like that. But here, when they are most comfortable, most um, booming with their economy doing well, God announces two judgments. Now, it's Amos's duty to proclaim this judgment. But although he proclaims it, and here's where it becomes interesting, although he proclaims these judgments, he also proclaims that they're not in fact coming. (laughs) That may seem a strange thing, but that's the fact. He announces the judgments, and at the same time, he announces that these judgments are not, in fact, coming. Now, however strange that may seem, I mean, we have instances of this in the Bible, God relenting, or sometimes, as it's put, God repenting. Um, Let me take one of the best-known examples, which was the the prophesied overthrow of Nineveh. You'll remember that God uh, took Jonah and sent him on a ministry that he really did not want to fulfill, which was to take the gospel to the people of Nineveh and to the heart of the Assyrian Empire. Now, he didn't want to do that. He he was given, first of all, a a message of, of judgment. Yet 40 days, he says, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now, the number 40 is significant. It always stands for probation or trial or opportunity, testing, something like that 
in the Bible. And famously, of course, after 40 days, Nineveh was not overthrown. God relented from what he said. The reason, of course, why he relented was because the people repented. Repentance can avert the judgment of God. It's so important to remember that. It can avert the judgment of God. And the fact is that in this chapter, the two judgments that Amos has announced here, locusts and drought, they're averted. But they're averted not because the people repented. I mean, that's what we would expect. We, we would think it would be the only reason why God would avert a judgment. But no, it's not. It's not because the people revent, repented. It's because Amos interceded for them. O Lord, he says, forgive, I pray, O that Jacob may stand, for he is small. That's what he said in connection with the locusts. And in connection then with the drought, Lord God, he says, cease, I pray, O that Jacob may stand, for he is small. And on both occasions we read in verses 3 and 6 that the Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be, said the Lord. So the Lord has said it shall be, then becomes the one who says it shall not be. And that's because of an intercession. Now, friends, this shows all of us, whether we're Christians or not, it shows us how important intercession actually is, how effective intercession is and sometimes even just the intercession of one man or one woman um, and there's a huge encouragement in that i mean if, if you take the case of the cities of the plain of sodom and gomorrah the, their wickedness had risen up to god uh, it demanded retribution it demanded dealing with um, but you'll remember that abraham interceded for Sodom. He interceded for the, for the whole city that God would actually spare it. Now, certainly God said to Abraham that he would spare it if there were but 10 righteous men found in it. But it's not just as simple as that, because he would not just spare it on the ground of the 10 righteous men being in it, but on the ground that Abraham prayed for it. The, the two things are to be taken together. So, so the ten righteous men would, would not itself be a preservation, but the intercession of Abraham would count for it being a preservation. Uh, these things are very important to remember when we are praying for our nation, for our churches, and for our families too. God takes note of these things. God hears these things. Um, if you consider Ezekiel 2, I think we looked at this passage uh, some time ago, but there's a very famous passage on intercession in Ezekiel 22. Again, this is describing how, how sinful the land has become. It says that the prophets in their midst, their conspiracy is like a roaring lion taking their prey. They have devoured people, so the, the prophets have just ceased to be what they should be. The priests, in verse 26, have violated my law. They've profaned my holy things. They have not distinguished between the holy and the unholy, nor have they made known the difference between the unclean and the clean, 
and they have hidden their own eyes from my Sabbaths. Now, the priests, of course, as I mentioned before, they are the regular teachers of God's people in every synagogue, in, in every part of the land. And the fact is that they're teaching the people nothing about what is clean and unclean, what is holy and what is unholy. They're not guiding people according to the truth, and they're not guiding them on the path of righteousness. Now, uh, God then says, so I sought for a man among them. Just one person. The emphasis here doesn't fall on the fact that it's a man, a male, but just a person. I sought for a man among them who would make a wall. That's, that means to come between my wrath and them. I sought for a man who would stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land that I should not destroy it. In other words, my, my righteousness, my holiness demands a response to this evil. But I looked for someone who would stand in that gap, but I found no one. Therefore, I have poured out my indignation on them and I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath and I have recompensed their deeds on their own heads, says the Lord. Intercession. Now, friends, um, let inter intercession be a, a vital part of your life and of mine too. And only God knows the reality of that. He alone knows whether we intercede, how we intercede, um, the sincerity of our intercession. Only God knows that. But I just want want to notice in the passing three things about it. First of all, I want you to notice that Amos' intercession here is based on a clear understanding of the situation. He's not deluded about what Israel is like, and he doesn't pretend it's better than it is. He knows it. He can see past the booming economy in Jeroboam the second day and the, the prestige that Israel has now amongst the surrounding nations. He can see behind that. He can see right through it. When he prays here, he prays for Israel under the name of Jacob. And I think the reason for that is very simple, that he's actually highlighting the fact that underneath it all, Jacob is, Israel is weak and small. Jacob, of course, as a man, famously became Israel when he obtained a blessing from God. It cost him the strength of his hips, but he obtained a blessing from God. And from that day forward, he was called Israel. But here he's called Jacob again. And uh, Amos recognizes that Israel is fundamentally weak because she is spiritually weak. The nation might be booming, but it is spiritually declining. He sees a weak church. He sees a church of little faith, a church that is being misled and a church that is drifted away from God. And, and he has a clear understanding of that situation, and that's behind his intercession. And of course, connected with that, he's got this clear understanding of the root cause. Forgive, he says, oh Lord, forgive. He knows the problem is sin in the church and in the state. And, and one of the sins that he highlights is the fact that everything seems to be governed by money. If you just move forward again a little bit to chapter 8, and uh, verse 5, he, he highlights the people who are living life like this, saying, when will the new moon be passed 
that we may sell grain. Now, the, the new moon was a divinely appointed holy day. But, but all the people are doing is just waiting for it to be over so that they can sell grain. And then the Sabbath, which of, God, which of course God appointed in a weekly cycle, when will it be over so that we may trade wheat? Now, of course, things have reached a situation with us, and they, and they reached it long ago, since the 1970s, 1980s, uh, when we, we stopped waiting for the Sabbath to be over. We couldn't wait for the Sabbath to be over anymore so that we could trade. And as well as trading, there's a lot of falsification going on. Again, in verse 5, making the ephah small, the shekel large, falsifying the scales by deceit, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and even sell bad wheat. And the Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, I will never forget any of their works. Shall the land not tremble for this? What he's bringing before us is a land that seems to be governed by money, the pursuit of wealth, and of course the leisure that comes along with it. Now, it's struck me a lot over the last few days, and I feel it's been laid in my own heart by the Lord, that a lot of what's wrong with this land has been caused by covetousness and greed. Uh, it's easy, you know, when other sins come to the fore, uh, sins that cry out for God's intervention, for example, the transgender agenda and all of these things, um, it's easy to forget what's, what's been a disease in our land since certainly, again, the, the 1980s, and that's this pursuit of wealth as though money and wealth is the only thing that matters, though money answers everything, which it does for so many people. When we know from the scripture that the love of it, not itself, not the thing itself, which God gives to some of his own people generously, but the love of it, the love of it is the root of all kinds of sin. And when you think of the sin that has abounded in the land, you know you can trace a lot of it to this. Money, the love of money. And the sheer covetousness in the hearts of men, which is idolatry. A love for cash, for possessions, for things. And for Amos to intercede properly, he needs to see and understand this. He's not deceived by the state of the nation. But you know, to intercede properly as well, and, and this is where our prayer life comes to the fore, Real intercession can only rise out of a loving heart. Amos has to be committed to the people amongst whom he lives and the people for whom he is going to intercede. You cannot really intercede for a people unless you love them. And that's why in many ways everything does come back to love, at least love properly understood. If you take the Apostle Paul around about 700 years after this, he's uh, grieving about Israel's rejection of the gospel. No, not their original rejection of Christ. Well, that was a grief too, and he was guilty of that himself. But their rejection of the gospel message. And uh, he is grieving, and, and you'll notice his love. He says to the church in Rome, I tell you the truth, he says, that I have great sorrow even though he was joyful in heart, at the same time, I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. Why? Well, he says, for my countrymen, according to the flesh. Now, that's a challenge to us. He sees the people amongst whom he's born and lives, 
as his countrymen. That's what they are according to the flesh. He emphasizes according to the flesh because he has a, a new spiritual family in Christ. But that hasn't completely divorced him from who he was and who he is according to the flesh. And he goes on to say, I could wish myself accursed from Christ for their sake. Now, this language is remarkable. Uh, it reminded me, actually, as I was preparing this sermon about Moses. When he prayed for Israel, he said, um, if need be, strike me out of the book of living, of the living, and uh, have mercy upon your people. Now, this is at the heart, I think, of what an intercessor is. An intercessor is someone who is uh, willing to stand not just in the gap, but in the place of someone. There's a, a kind of vicarious element in it, willing to take some pain or grief for the benefit of someone else. Brethren, he says, um, I could wish myself accursed. That's unthinkable. In fact, it's impossible. No one can wish himself accursed from Christ, but that's so strongly he feels. He's, he doesn't say, I, he doesn't say, I do wish my, but I could. Do you hear me? He says, uh, let me put it this way so that you could understand it. I could wish myself accursed from Christ for their sake. Now, he doesn't just leave the matter at grief and sorrow. You'll notice that this Grief and sorrow, because of love, becomes a prayer of intercession. He turns that into something positive. It's so important. We saw, oh, well, I was going to say a month ago, I think it's years ago now, but we saw the importance of turning anxiety into prayer. Instead of being anxious about things, that we, with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let our requests be made known to God. Well, here we need to turn our love our intense love, which may be coupled with grief and sorrow because of the way things are, but we need to turn it to intercession. My prayer to God, he says. And so it's not just a matter of love and grief and sorrow. He says, brethren, my prayer to God is for Israel that they might be saved. And that is Amos's prayer for his people too. O Lord, forgive, O that Jacob might stand, for he is small. And the wonderful thing is, very simply here, that God hears this intercession and he relents. Isn't that wonderful? Here is God about to deal with a whole nation. One man prays and God changes course. Astonishing. Let me just say a word to those of you who are being prayed for and a word to those who are praying. And first of all, those who are prayed for. I don't know if you're aware that it may well be someone's intercession that is stopping God's judgment from falling on you. Maybe it's the intercession of your mother or your father, uh, your brother, or your sister, your grandmother or your grandfather. It's stopping the judgment. Now, I suppose the question is, does this mean God's judgment is delayed? Or does it mean that God's judgment is actually averted? 
Because there is a big difference between God's judgment delayed and God's judgment averted. If you remember the parable of the unfruitful fig tree in Luke 13, uh, the fig tree that bore no fruit constantly, year after year, and there was a command issued to cut it down because it was a waste of space. Why does it cumber the ground? It's just wasting good ground. And then the intercessor cries out, leave it, leave it one more year. And if the fruit grows on it, then, well, good, he says, good. But if not, then cut it down. So for one more year, that fig tree will stand. But who knows whether that's judgment averted or judgment merely delayed. You might be confident today that you're going to be saved because your father is an intercessor for you. But... Is that just averting your judgment? Is that just delaying your judgment or averting it? Unless you repent, in other words, you're living on borrowed time. It's a wonderful thing to have someone interceding for you. But it doesn't save you. It's delayed God's judgment. You're still living. And even today, as I'm speaking, you're here in the gospel. But is it delayed or averted? But a word to those praying too, the the power of one person's prayer should be a great encouragement to all of you. The fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much, James says. And again, the emphasis is not on the man. It can be a woman too. It's on the fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much in its effectiveness. And it's good to know that. Um, Even if, even if perhaps you're praying for someone in particular and their conversion, you you may be a bit disillusioned or discouraged that that conversion hasn't, hasn't arrived yet. But is it not an encouragement that neither has their death? Even if the judgment may not have been averted yet, it's still delayed And it's delayed in connection with your prayer. And that delay that exists right now should encourage you to keep asking that it be averted. I was thinking a lot this week about how Christ encourages our prayers. Um, I was thinking about how wide the promises are in the Bible. I'm sure you've been struck by this from time to time yourself. For example, in John 14, 13, whatever you ask in my name, that I will do. Or again, ask and receive that your joy may be full. Now, I know as well as you do that there are qualifications to these things. We we do have to be careful that our prayer is offered in a right spirit and that we are not double-minded but asking in faith and so on. But when, when the necessary qualifications are put on, you're still confronted with a stark fact that Jesus utters these promises in this form. Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do. He doesn't qualify it there anyway. Ask and receive that your joy may be full. He doesn't qualify it there either, except that we just ask in his name. And I think the reason is that the reason for that door of invitation or that door of encouragement being so large and being such an open door is because he wants it to be like that. 
He wants us to know that it's open and wide, and he wants us to walk right into it and to ask and to ask boldly and to persevere in asking because we are looking to the mercy of God. We ourselves have tasted of the mercy of God, and we really want it for our nation, for our churches, and for our families. There's no denying that. It's such a large and open invitation. Let that encourage you to keep praying. At the same time, we can't help but notice that there's a change with the third vision. The vision of the locusts is followed by intercession. The vision of the fiery drought is followed by intercession. But then you've got the vision vision of the plumb line in verse 7, where God's standing on a wall with a plumb line in his hand. Now, some of you will not be aware of what a plumb line is. It's a kind of spirit level for the vertical. Maybe that doesn't help you understand it either. But essentially what it is is something that was used often by builders. It still is. You know, you can use it for papering around the house or something. It's just a a piece of string with a heavy weight attached to the bottom of it. And when you hold the string at the top, uh, the weight, of course, follows gravity and pulls the string in an exact straight line. Now, God is standing beside this wall, and he's got a plumb line attached to it. The wall here represents Israel themselves as a people, their lives, and the, the corporate life of the nation too, in state and in church. And the Lord's holding the plumb line down to it. Uh, he commanded this wall to be built. And in fact, when, when he built the wall, it was built straight. But he's looking at, at their work. He's looking at their lives. He's looking at what they've, they've become. And he's finding a crooked wall. And he's finding a building that cannot stand because without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. And this is a grief. This is the Israel whom he called and formed. I, I took you out of Egypt. I taught Ephraim to walk. And now here's a, here's a nation that has fallen so far away from the plumb line. Without holiness, no man can see the Lord. And we know what happens to buildings that, that, that don't stand up to the Lord's scrutiny. He doesn't look for perfection, but he, he does look for this faithfulness. In Isaiah, God says, I am laying a foundation stone in Zion. And I will make justice the measuring line. And righteousness will be the plummet or the plumb line. And my hail will sweep away your refuge of lies. And the waters will overflow your hiding place. And your covenant with death will be annulled. In other words, you think you can escape death on your own terms. You've made a kind of covenant with it. But it's it's a house of lies. It's a refuge of lies, God says. And when my judgment sweeps through the land, it's going to sweep away you, refuge of lies, and you in it. Christ, of course, famously compared the foolish man to, um, who rejects his word and his commandments. He compares such a man to a foolish man who builds his house upon the sand. Because when the winds come and the rains and they beat upon that house, it it's taken away. It doesn't stand, it falls, and great shall be its fall. And here God says, well, this fall is going to be great too. In verse 8, I'm setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will not 
pass by them anymore. Um, that may sound to you like a good thing, but it's actually a terrible thing. The passing by here is, well, it takes us back to the Passover. You'll remember when um, Israel, when Egypt was about to be visited by the plagues, well, there was only one protection from the last plague, one protection, and it consisted in the blood of the lamb being applied to the houses. And at the time of the Passover, the angel of death passed through the land and passed over. That's the meaning of Passover. It passed over the houses in which there was a covering of blood. So God passed them by. That was a good thing. That was a mercy. So when God says here, I will not pass by them anymore, he means I'm going to stop at the house. I'm going to judge this house. I'm going to judge this nation, this nation of mine, this blessed and privileged nation. I'm going to judge it. So that in verse 9, the high places of Isaac shall be desolate. The sanctuaries, the churches of Israel shall be laid waste. And I will rise with the sword against the house of Jeroboam. I'm calling this time. I've passed by very often, but I'm calling. And you'll notice this time there's no intercession. No intercession. And Amos, of course, is communicating this to the people. His, his task as a prophet is to pass on these visions. So he passes on to them that I saw locusts and I prayed and they're not coming. I saw drought and I prayed and they're not coming. And now I see total desolation, but there's no prayer because it is coming. This time there's no, oh Lord, cease or oh Lord, forgive. Oh, that Jacob may stand for he is so small. It's just not there. And I think there's only one explanation for this. It's an obvious explanation. And uh, it's a very solemn one. That God has told Amos regarding Israel what he was to tell Jeremiah later regarding Judah. And that's don't pray anymore. Don't pray anymore. In other words, when God says, I'm going to do this, you know, sometimes when God says, I'm going to do this, it's actually, it's, it's a kind of code word for you to start praying that he wouldn't. It's, uh, it's as though he says he's going to do it. And what will you do about it? In other words, he's saying to you, will you lay hold of me? And when we do lay hold of him, he, he doesn't do it. But sometimes he makes absolutely plain that he's saying something, not because he wants you to intercede about it, but because he wants you not to. He wants you not to. Jeremiah 11 and verse 11. Behold, I will bring calamity on them. This time, this is many years later, and it's in connection with the southern kingdom of Judah. I will bring calamity on them, which they will not be able to escape. And though they cry out, I will not listen to them. So do not pray for this people. Do not lift up a cry or a prayer for them. For I will not hear them in the time that they cry out to me because of their trouble. Now these words are legitimately worrying. It's our duty to intercede. It's our duty to intercede. And who knows the extent to which God hand, God's hand has been lied to us just because of intercessors. Is that not true? I mean, we've sometimes look at the, looked at the provocations that have come up from this land. I mean, the things that have happened. You know, you get used to things. 
But we should never get used to the evils that have been legislated in our land. And we've sometimes wondered why God hasn't come down. But there have been intercessors, have there not? Godly men and women who have said, Lord, forgive. Jacob is small. How can he stand? But let me ask you a couple of things. Think about them. Is God removing intercessors from this land? Uh, We've all known people, uh, men and women, uh, whose lives seem to be dedicated to prayer to God. And I've no doubt, just as you've no doubt, that God was hearing them, that God was answering them and preserving many people because of it. Isaiah mentions the righteous perishes and no one lays it to heart. I wonder if he had special reference to these kinds of people. People who are preservatives in the land and they are perishing and no one is laying it to heart. No one's considering the fact that these intercessors are not as plentiful as they were. Let me take it home to you and to me. Is God removing intercession from ourselves? Have you got a spirit of it? It's good if you do. But is, it, is your intercession, is it equal to your burden, let's say? I was talking earlier about uh, converting grief and worry into prayer. Is that true for you? Do, are you able to go on your knees and to ask for God's judgment to be averted from this land? Are you able to do that? If not, is that a sign that God is going to visit us? even more severely than he has. Put it another way, if this declension continues, this declension in our state and in our church, I mean, think of what's going on. Children being given cocktails of drugs so that they can change from being boys to girls or girls to boys. And that's not called child abuse. Amazingly, smacking someone's hand is... But that is not. When you think of all that, would it be any wonder, really, if God said to the intercessors in this land, just leave them. You're not going to avert my judgment on this this land. You're not going to avert uh, my judgment falling on this nation. And uh, famously, in a verse that we we looked at some time ago in in Ezekiel, 14 and verse 12, God says to Ezekiel, son of man, when a land sins against me. Now, think, think of our own land just now. When a land sins against me by persistent unfaithfulness, I will stretch out my hand against it. And even if these three men, Noah, Daniel and Job were in it, they would only deliver themselves by their righteousness. Now, These three men were outstanding men of God in their own generation, were they not? Noah alone found grace in the sight of the Lord in his day. He was the godliest man living in his generation. Job, we are told, was the most righteous man on the face of the earth in his generation. The implication is that Daniel, too, uh, was the godliest man in his generation. It's interesting that Ezekiel, who, who records this, was a contemporary of Daniel. 
and he could say uh, regarding Daniel, well, what God says about him. These three men were outstanding in their own generation. That means they were intercessors. They were men of prayer. Um, Job prays for his friends and for their healing. And Daniel, of course, prays for the nation and so on. But God says that even if these three men were in Jerusalem right now, he says, they would only save themselves by their righteousness. In other words, their intercessory prayer for this city just wouldn't work. It wouldn't work. In spite of their holiness and in spite of the power of their prayer, it just would not work. Now you say, well, surely that can't happen to a nation like Scotland. But that's exactly what they said in Jerusalem. That's exactly what they said. Surely that can't happen here. But it did. God had determined the desolation. Now, I'm not saying that God has a a worse catastrophe to come than the coronavirus. But if God has not really opened our mouths in intercessory prayer, what else can it mean? I'm quite sure that if we really besought him, he would turn, but are we doing it? The fact that It's not really being done. It's the greatest sign that he's closed the mouth. And you know, the Lord who opens and no man shuts and the Lord who shuts and no man opens. If he shuts the mouth of an intercessor, who can open it? The intercessor may try to pray and find that that it's just blocked. Is it blocked because God blocked it? Now, that was a grief to Amos. Amos is obviously a man who doesn't just love Judah, where he's from, but he loves Israel too. And he knows that God will ultimately prevail. He knows that ultimately the nation will come good again. He knows that. But he knows that in the meantime, God must deal with their sin. And that's how we feel too, unless we really lay hold of God. Is this not a window of opportunity? Is the coronavirus and the waves of virus that have come. Is it not an opportunity just to, to get hold of God and ask him and beseech him that he would relent because Jacob is small and that we ourselves would dedicate ourselves in a new way to the rebuilding of the work of God in the land. Now, that's the prophet. Let, let's leave him there. We're going to turn tonight to Amaz- to the one who confronts him, Amaziah the priest, When we do that, we'll actually turn back a little to the prophet too, but they both need to be understood together. May the Lord help us to meditate on his word. Let's close with prayer. O Lord, we are thankful for those who have spoken to us the word of God. And we realize that it is not easy for a prophet to deliver his own burden. But we recognize that Even as in the case of Amos, it often comes to us from a heart that only seeks good. And uh, we pray that we would never resent the faithful warnings of a friend. Let the righteous smite me. It shall a kindness be. And uh, we know that repentance is the answer to everything. And we pray that as we hear the word of God, we would 
not be discouraged or disillusioned by it, for all it takes is to call meaningfully upon the name of the Lord, and we shall be restored, we shall be saved, we shall be renewed. There is nothing that will be kept from us if we but call upon God's name. And for our children and families, upon whom uh, judgment is being still delayed and restrained, Lord, we pray for that faith in their hearts that would avert it altogether. We know that you take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. That is written in your word. And neither as intercessors do we take pleasure in the death of the wicked, save for the sake of your own glorious name. In the Saviour's name, Amen. Let's um, bring your worship to a close by singing in Psalm 90 and on page 350. Psalm 90 and uh, the last three stanzas of the psalm. Verse 15. This is a prayer of Moses, who was himself a great intercessor. He, he stood in between the people. And he stood in between a people who, who weren't always kind to himself. But he stood in between a people and the wrath of God. And here we see him praying too on another occasion. According as the days have been, wherein we grief have had. And this is referring to the 40 years of uh, chastisement in the wilderness. And years wherein we ill have seen, so do thou make us glad. Give us double. There's an idea of double being given throughout the scriptures. Receiving double for our sins. In other words, things are restored. Oh, let thy work and power appear. Thy servants face before. And show unto their children dear thy glory evermore. And let the beauty of the Lord our God be us upon. Our handiworks establish thou, establish them, each one. These three stanzas to the praise of God. Let's receive the Lord's blessing as a people. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you. Amen. <laughs>